on the Author Archive today, a conversation that I recorded with David Sedaris in the year 2000. He was a new name on the scene then. Not a lot of people realised how funny he was, or indeed who he was. One of the things that I picked up from Me Talk Pretty one day was that his father wanted him to be a guitar player. I wanted to be a guitar player. I wanted my dad to want me to be a guitar player, but he didn't. And the funny thing was, the ironic thing was, that young David Sedaris didn't want to be a guitar player. I never, ever, ever wanted to play the guitar. That was just not my plan at all. He, but he had this idea. He's a great jazz enthusiast, and he had this plan that his six children would form a jazz combo. So he got my older sister a piano and another sister a flute, and I was assigned the guitar. And I took lessons from a midget at a shopping center. And I was 12 years old at the time. But I just was shocked just to be in this... Uh, you know, such close quarters with a midget. I mean, I was 12 and he maybe came up to here on me. He was the size of, of his guitar. But he, wa he wasn't a dwarf, he was a midget, you know, perfectly formed. And I wanted him to, I don't know, like we could open a detective agency or he would be my best friend or, oh, David and that midget. You know, I had all these <laughs> thoughts, but he, it wasn't meant to be the guitar or a friendship with an adult midget. It just wasn't meant to be. Yeah, but he was, he was interested in women. Well, parts of women, anyway. That was his, his old thing, that a woman and desire for a woman could teach you, could get you anywhere. If you thought of your guitar as a woman, if you gave your guitar a, a woman's, woman's name, name. <laughs> you wouldn't want to take your hands off of her. And I... Women didn't interest me either. You know, it was a woman, the guitar, I mean, jazz, the whole thing. The only thing that interested me was spending time with the midget. That was the only thing. Because you, didn't you become, you, you kind of, as you read that little bit of the book, because it's, it's short chapters of um, reminiscence and memory and chapters out of Sidaris's life, you could become quite um, protective. You become... You want him to kind of be my midget. Oh, yeah. That's what I... Yeah, I wanted him to be mine. And when people started making fun of him, like I saw him at the mall one day and people were making fun of him, then I really wanted to... You know, I felt very protective. Like, hey, he's my midget. Hands off. You don't, you don't know him the way that I do. But you know how that works sometimes? You, you want to feel protective of somebody, but at the same time, you just don't like them. <laughs> and he, he has this thing about women's breasts, but presumably that's the level that he's at. This is something he looks up to. <laughs> if it starts to rain, that's where he'd go, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, actually, the part that he would see when he was standing up would, would n not be the breast. But if he was on a stool, yeah. he would. <laughs> and your father fathered these six children, and you say, isn't it <clears throat> remarkable that none of us are like him? None of us share. He's an engineer. He worked with IBM. Completely fascinated in in the way that things work. And none of us give a damn. None of us have expressed any interest whatsoever in any of that. It was always my mother and six children on one side, and my father on the other. And you know, he really hoped. He really hoped that we would that we would embrace the things that. That drove him, but so, it just never I mean, if, he, out. if he was here now, 
I mean, you talk about him. He worked in computers when they were the size of three fridges, didn't they? I mean, yeah. they, these were these were big things, you know. And and didn't he? You, you you kind of paint a picture of him whimsically dreaming of the internet. Wouldn't it be just great when we can all just communicate like this? It, this would have been to see you available to the whole world on this would have really excited him. Yeah, but it, again, um, it doesn't. It doesn't do a thing for me or anyone else in my family. I used a typewriter all my life. And last year, my boyfriend gave me one of those iBook things. It's the color of a, it's that slate colored. And I never asked for one. And I put it away, and then I pulled it out a few months later, and I thought, well, it's pretty to look at. You know, I'll just put it, put it on the table there, because it's pretty to look at. And then one day, I started using it. and and now I, I can't believe it. I, I use it as a typewriter. I've never expressed any interest beyond that. One day I thought, oh, I can make this letter really big. But my, my curiosity never went beyond that. I've never looked at a website or I've never, I don't want email. I don't know what those look like. Um, I just use it as a typewriter. But the problem is, and it's fine that way, it's small, you can carry it around, but you can't get stuff to come out of it. So you, you, you kind of itch for the paper to appear. Well, you can count on paper. Yeah. You can't count on, you know, like I was told, oh, you bring it anywhere and you can use a printer at a hotel. But then it turns out that the printer at the hotel has to know your computer somehow or it, it won't work. So it's not, it's complicated. And then you, it's just a headache. So I have to go on these lecture tours um, twice a year. And so uh, it sounds kind of spoiled and everything, but I have it in my contract that they have to provide me with an IBM Wheelwriter 1, 2, or 3. Because, uh, you know, I, on these lecture tours, I read something out loud, then I go back to the room and rewrite it, and I need assurance that I can have a piece of paper in my hand. Is this a step up from the, the, the part of your life where you taught, you taught literature through the rather unconventional means of soap operas? I got a job teaching, and it was just a favor. I, I mean, the department head had been very, <clears throat> he was a teacher of mine, and he was very, always very nice to me. And then someone canceled. They got a better paying job delivering pizzas. So they offered the, the teaching position to me. And I, I, I don't know how to tell somebody how to write. I, I don't have a clue. I, I know that sometimes something works, and sometimes it doesn't, but I don't know why. I really, I don't have a clue. So I had three hours a day to fill, and I didn't know anything. So I thought, okay, three hours, um, we'll watch TV. And then I, I thought my students would be happy to do that, because we watched One Life to Live, which is really the best American soap opera that there is. So it's Santa Barbara and all those. I don't believe in those California soap operas, because they have scenes that take place outdoors, like they'll really go to the beach. And on One Life to Live, if you're going to the beach, you can hear footsteps on boards while they're on the <laughs> yeah. beach. It's just sand down there. And to me, a soap opera has to take place on the East Coast, and someone either lives outside of New York or Philadelphia. So every now and then they go, and they go to glamorous parties. But then otherwise, it's like five families, center of the universe, in a small town. So we would watch One Life to Live, and I thought they'd be happy. And I explained, oh, this is Victoria. She has a multiple personality disorder. That's her husband, Clint. She used to be married you know, to, and, or, to this guy, and her father is Victor. And they didn't, then they started saying, well, this, what about writing? 
like what I mean I had the only students in the world who wanted to learn something and he, <laughs> I would have been delighted if I'd had a, a teacher who a let me smoke in class forced me to smoke in class and let me watch TV so then they complained and so I said okay you have to watch the soap opera and then you have to write what you think might happen tomorrow which is really a good assignment it's a good project I thought but they didn't uh, they weren't up to it and the last thing you want to do really is in a class like that is listen to people read what they wrote I mean I would take it home and read it and that's fine but not everyone was meant to read out loud then not everyone enjoys it so and I don't really believe in having people write in class because who wants to do that you know maybe you need a certain kind of typewriter or maybe you need to get drunk or maybe you know who knows what you need you need to be naked whatever it is so oh, it was just horrible but I, I taught for like two and a half years I kept it up so you, get, you got away with it for two and a half years that's an achievement um, I, I had a couple students who were really really good but all I felt for them was I, I just felt sorry for them that I was their teacher I, I didn't know what to what could I possibly do for them to me the only reason to go to school for something is if you need friends or at least people to talk about let's say if you want to move to a strange town and you don't know anybody enroll in school because it'll give you people to talk about um, or to to go to school if somebody you know if you really want to learn something like how do I remove a kidney great go to school and learn it or if the teachers can do something for you like if I went to school for writing if you went to school for writing you would want your teacher to say oh let me um, hand this over to my my friend the editor at the New Yorker okay fine I, I can see that but I didn't have anything to offer these kids how about if you write if you find yourself living in a foreign capital where everyone around speaks a language that uh, is not your mother tongue would that be a good place to go to school well, I went to school when I moved to Paris. I went to a, a French language school. But all my, I was like Paul Kettle. Do they have Paul Kettle here? There were these movies, Ma and Paul Kettle. And Ma and Paul Kettle were these, were just hillbillies, just hopeless hillbillies, old hillbillies. And that's what I felt like in my, in my class. I was the only American or native English speaker in the school. And I was so much older than everybody else. Like everybody else was like 18 or 20, and they looked like they just stepped out of a Pepsi commercial. And they were all enthusiastic, and they wanted to go on picnics and what stand in the hall and sing songs from their native countries. And you know, that's just <laughs> exhausting to me. I, I wasn't about to. You know, they were sweet, but they just weren't friend material. You know, they just weren't people that I would. You know, you know, if it, if it's is telephone David it's hop sing I mean it just wasn't my my group really <clears throat> but, did, but did you learn you said there's an analysis of the foreigners attitude to French and you say there's number one style one where you end up um, circumlocuting and kind of over talking in the way some people overwrite and the other way is just to shout very loudly in probably your native tongue do you do you naturally go to number two um when, well, while talking to other, I, yeah, I moved. I went, first went to France. I, I was a francophobe, right? So I was always afraid. I never wanted to go to France. And then I, I met this guy, and he had a house in Normandy. And so it took me like two years, but then I finally said, "Okay, I'll go," because I heard there were things to buy there. 
It really, it's great for shopping. It really is great. And, but I never, ever, ever in France talked to anyone in English. Even when I didn't know any French, I would say to Hugh, Hugh, what do I say? Or I'd write it down on a card. And if they chose to, to speak in English, then fine. But that was, that was their choice, and I was grateful that they made that decision. So I've never been one of those. It's really embarrassing. I mean, you see Americans, and it's Americans. It's not the English. It's Americans who, who you see who go into places and then chastise people for not speaking English. Well, you better learn to speak English. That's the language of the future. Like it's just an accident of birth, right? That Americans, that that maybe English is a language that people need to yeah, learn. You have a scene on a on a on a metro where you're clutching the um, the pole to steady you, and there's a couple of Americans who aren't aware because um, um, Americans <coughs> presumably in Paris think everyone else is just speaking French, and they they're, they're talking to you about your bodily hygiene or talking about you. Uh, and assume you don't understand. Well, it was these two Americans, and, and they got, you know, with their sneakers. They were maybe going to a fancy restaurant for dinner. They had their sneakers and their shorts on, and they're hugging that pole, the pole that people need to hold on to. Hmm. So I put my hand between them, and then the guy said, wow, you smell that? This little froggy is ripe. And I had just taken a bath. I did not smell bad, but it was one of those situations where you have to fit into their stereotype, right? So and, and Americans do that all the time. They just assume that everyone around them is French and that they don't speak any English whatsoever. And so they had this whole conversation right in front of me. And at first it was that I smelled bad. And then they decided that I was trying to steal this woman's purse. And, and there was this long con And I kept thinking, well, I'll say something in a minute. I just really want to get it to the point where I can really, really embarrass him by saying something. And then I thought, no, I'll do better than that, and I'll steal the wallet from my boyfriend's back pocket, and they'll think that I'm trying to pick his pocket, and they'll make a big scene. But then my boyfriend blew it by tapping me on the shoulder when it, our stop came, it, at which point they decided he was my accomplice. And it was one of those situations, too, where I was under deadline for this book, so the first second they said that I smelled bad, I, I was writing it in my head. I was already writing it and just hoping hoping that they would continue. And they did. And ultimately, ultimately nothing happened. I never said anything to them. But the problem is, saying something to them, the goal is to publicly humiliate them, right? Mm. But you have to say something in French in order to publicly humiliate them. But they didn't speak French, yeah. so they wouldn't know what was being said. So that was a point when you really did wish the world just spoke one language. <laughs> Me Talk Pretty One Day, for a book with literary aspirations, it's a somewhat clunky title. Well, I was in class one day, and uh, it, it's bad French translated into English. Um, a student had said, uh, don't be sad now, much work, and one day you talk pretty. So I used that for the title. Um, it had been called Primates on the Seine, and I went around Paris looking for monkeys. And I found a lot, and I wrote up all these stories about monkeys, but I don't know. It was just like the weakest thing in the book. And then they gave me this cover. There was this picture of a taxidermied orangutan I wanted for the cover, and that was the reason I called it that and wrote that essay. But the woman wouldn't sell the rights to the photograph. So I said, 
And so they gave me a picture of a chimp smoking a cigarette dressed in clothes, which I don't, that's, to me that's not funny. And so I, I found another picture of a monkey with electrodes strapped to its head and said, this, this is funny. And the publisher said that she wouldn't publish a book with a monkey being tortured on the cover. Like, how does she know he's unhappy? That's her reading into it. <laughs> we don't know these things. So I just wound up changing the title of the book. And changing the book, really? I just took out that essay about the monkeys and changed the title of the book. And when I changed the title of the book, then I suppose I saw how many of the stories had to do with language in, in one way or another. And it wound up uh, working in that sense. Because when I sat down, I didn't have, I, I do a lot for the radio in the United States. And, and I write for Esquire. So I just put all those stories in an envelope. I mean, in a, in a folder and said, oh, I guess this is that book I'm supposed to write. And then I added new things to it. But then when I changed the title, then at the very last minute, I could sort of see it clearly as a book. Because I have a 10-page attention span. That's it, 10 pages. And like when I look at novels, I cannot imagine how people do that, how they sustain those characters and how they plot. You know, you have to have a pl you have to have a reason for people to keep turning the page. In my books, people turn the pages because they think, eh, there's just three more, why not? But they don't, I don't think they do it like, you know, the way you read like a good, trashy book because I'm not interested in really reading anything that's not like that. You know, like when people say, oh, I've been reading Proust for the last 18 months. Now, to me, that you have a problem. You know, if it's taking you like three hours to get through a page that's in English, there's a problem. You should be doing something else. Something else. Um, and there's a lot of great trash out there to read. I, I've just started... I always thought I was going to save it until I get 50, until I turn 50, and then I'm going to get into my mystery phase. Because that is, that is, they just keep coming, don't they? I mean, if you love a mystery, they just, there's a whole world out there. I like, uh, I'm just coming out of my true crime phase. So, and what's going to be the next phase? Well, after true crime, well, I've got, that'll give me five years between true crime and mystery. Um, you know, I, lately I just like those adventure books, like even that Michael Crichton, you know, five good-looking graduate students find a time machine and go back to medieval France. I'm right there, you know. <laughs> I, I was just more than happy to, to read that. This one, and I laughed out, so, uh, laughed out loud on the train reading this, and that way people look at you very suspiciously. Me talk pretty one day. David Sedaris, thank you. I'm David Freeman. This is the Author Archive, and David Sedaris was talking to me in the year 2000 when his book Me Talk Pretty One Day was first published.